Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. God monitors us and cuts our trial short so that it makes a way of escape. As a matter of fact, the brothers... They saw this. The more, the brothers saw this. The more we love our father Jacob, the closer we'll become to Joseph. All right? So the point is this, that as the brothers and Joseph set their focus on their love of their common father, not focusing on each other, they got closer to each other. And so as the brothers focused their love and their devotion on the father, they were gaining what they needed in their relationship with each other, which was unity and harmony. Now, there's two ways. There's there's two ways to try to achieve unity and harmony. One way is the so-called direct way, where the brothers and Joseph would have sat down together and they said, okay, now now's our chance to bring out all the grievances of the past. Lay it all out, air it out in the open, let's get it open. That's the direct approach to gain unity and harmony, where Joseph may say something like, I have a problem with you because you hated me back at home and you were always opposed to me in every situation in the past. And in this direct approach to unity and harmony, the brothers might say something like, well, we have a problem with you because you always walked around in that house like a proud peacock in that coat of yours and you flouted that coat in front of us that dad made for us. Now, that direct approach, as each other brought up their grievances, it would be like tearing a scab off of old wounds, and it would be a painful reliving of it all, and it would lead them to remember, oh, yeah, I forgot about that, you know? And in the end, there would not be a hug, let's hug and make up, you know, let's kiss and make up. No, no, it would have led to deeper bitterness, deeper anger at each other. Because the direct approach of addressing all these grievances of the past would not have worked to bring about the unity and the harmony between Joseph and his brothers. Now, I'm not saying that there should not be a confession and asking forgiveness for wrongs or offenses in the past, but bringing them up from the past as a way to achieve harmony and unity, that wouldn't have worked. Now, the other way is the indirect method, where Joseph and his brothers, they focus their love and attention on their father. And as the brothers and Joseph both realize, we love and care for the same person. Then they get closer to each other, and they brings about the unity. When Joseph asks in verse 3, doth my father yet live? Joseph is opening the door for this effective indirect method of gaining this unity and harmony between himself and his brothers. So the need that we're seeing here for Joseph and his brothers is to gain unity and harmony, or regain it, well, who knows if they ever had. 
And that's the greatest need in a marriage and in church today. The greatest need in a marriage or a church is for unity and harmony. And God so much yearns for there to be this unity and harmony in a marriage or a church that he expresses his great joy, his great happiness when he finds it in Psalm 133.1. Psalm 133.1, which says, Behold, how good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And so, but our inclination as people, is we want to go the direct method. We want to get it, get it all out on the table, all of our grievances so we can set the record straight. That's what we want to do. We want to set the record straight and get the satisfaction of demonstrating we were right. And so to get the satisfaction that we're going to go to a Christian counselor and the Christian counselor is going to hear the, all this and privately or together and then he's going to come back and say, you are right. And you, and, and you were, you, know, you were so wrong. See, that's not the way to achieve unity and harmony. What Joseph said in verse three is the key when he said, doth my father yet live? Because Joseph was not interested in digging up the ugly past. Joseph was not, and, and he, you know, he was not saying something like, well, you know, let's kumbaya, you know, <laughs> let's all just get together and get along just now. Joseph is showing them that, that as they both huddled around their frail father, that they would be coming together in unity and harmony. And when in a marriage there, there's a need for unity and harmony, if both husband and wife only air their grievances at each other, what seems to be like an open, uh, honest, get it all out there, it's only going to drive farther apart. And I'm not saying it's wrong to tell another how you, how they offended and, and, but that's not the way to unity and harmony. When in a church there's a need for unity and harmony, if, if there's only an airing of offenses, you know, following the directions of Matthew, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go first to him. That's not the way to achieve unity and harmony. But if in a marriage the husband and the wife, they, they turn from their grievances to a renewal of their personal vows to the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and deepen their love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, then the song could be something like, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things that divide us will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So this is the indirect method of achieving unity and harmony by focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the greatest resource that a married couple has for achieving unity and harmony. And that's the reason why it's so vital for a Christian to marry a Christian, so that they, they have this resource to achieve unity and harmony by their mutual love for the Lord Jesus Christ and their mutual service to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul used that analogy of the yoke when he said in 2 Corinthians 6.14, 2 Corinthians 6.14 be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? See, these words, fellowship and communion, they're all about unity and harmony. And to achieve it, there must be a yoking together in love and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the indirect way to achieve the unity and harmony. It's like the two sailors who were on the deck of a merchant ship and they were fighting with each other. They were really slugging it out on the foredeck. And the captain yelled out, man overboard. And immediately those two sailors jumped overboard and they worked together to save their friend. 
They stopped fighting and they worked together when they saw their friend overboard. They, be, they became yoked together to save their friend. Now, now, so this is the signal that Joseph is giving to his brothers when he says in verse 3, does my father yet live? And when Joseph asked his brothers if his father was still alive, the brothers saw that this is the way. This is the way to stop Joseph from taking revenge on us. And even after their father died, he continued to try to capitalize on this a little bit as they made up a story, which is, which, which is not foreign to them. They're very good at making up stories. But they made up another story. In fact, the end of the book here in chapter 50 has a story they made up. Anyway, it says in Genesis 50, verse 15, Genesis 15, verse 15, when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph peradventure will hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph saying, thy father did command before he died saying, you so shall you say unto Joseph, forgive, I pray thee now the trespass of thy brethren and of their sin. And they did unto the evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy servants of the God of thy father. Now that was all made up. But anyway, it says, and Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face and said, behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring to pass it is this day to save much people alive. Now, therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. So the brothers thought that when their father died that, oh, we're going to get it now. We're going to get, we're really in trouble with Joseph. So they make up the story about Joseph, you don't know, but you know, your father, our father, he whispered in our ear, he told us this. So, and so when Joseph saw that his brothers had resorted to another lie, but this time to get him to forgive him, he cried. Joseph cried. And then when Joseph turned to his brothers, he told them that I'm not in God's place. I'm just sent here to save much people alive. And so I'm going to be like God, and I'm going to take care of you and your children. All right, so now the brothers, they're looking to, at the governor who's just told them that he's Joseph, and then he asked this question, does my father yet live? And the response in verse 3, Genesis 45, 3, his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. Now, why couldn't they answer him? Well, they're, they're terrified. <laughs> why are they terrified? Well, the reason is, the key is the last part. It says they were, it says that they were troubled at his presence. That's what they were terrified at, at his presence. The shock was the presence of Joseph. The shock was to see that Joseph was alive and he was standing in front of them. Imagine how their minds went immediately back. When was the last time I saw Joseph, you know, and knew it was Joseph? You know, the last time they saw him, he was as good as dead. The last time they saw Joseph, he was all battered. He was bruised up. He'd been thrown into a pit to die of thirst. They hauled him out and stripped him of his coat and sold him off for 20 pieces of silver. And now they look at him and they say, he doesn't look battered. He doesn't look bruised. He's surrounded by glory. He's surrounded by wealth. And all they could think of, what did we do to him? You know, and they were terrified. Now, that's a picture of when the lost stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in the final judgment. I mean, it's just like the brothers. The lost will not be able to believe their eyes. Their eyes will see the Lord Jesus as it says in Revelation 1-7, Revelation 1-7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. 
And they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. And, and so as we see the brothers not able to answer Joseph in verse 3, it's a picture of what it's going to be like for the lost who stand before the Lord Jesus in judgment, as it says in, in Romans 3.19. Romans 3.19 says, every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now, why is every mouth going to be stopped? when they stand before the Lord Jesus, because every person's going to be filled with this tremendous knowledge of how guilty they are, then they won't be able to talk. And that's the reason the brothers can't speak when they stand before Joseph, and they're just filled with this sense of guilt, which they had expressed already in uh, Genesis 42.21. Genesis 42.21 is when they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore has this distress come upon us. So this this knowledge that they're verily guilty that makes them speechless. And the last time they saw Joseph, he looked pretty harmless. He looked harmless. Last time they saw Joseph, he was just like a the, the baby kid brother in the family. You were carrying messages, doing errands, carrying supplies back and forth from their father to them. I mean, to the brothers, Joseph looked like David did to his brothers. And one of them said in 1 Samuel 17, 28, who's Eliab, 1 Samuel 17, 28, Eliab, Joseph, David's brother, said, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither, and with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride, the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down, and thou mayest see the battle. So that's the way that David appeared to his brothers. It's like a kid. He just is entrusted with a few unimportant sheep way out in some wilderness. And that's the way Joseph looked to his brothers, just like a kid brother who was just an errand boy. But now Joseph is the most powerful man in the world, and there before him, with, with all, he has all this power to judge them. That's a picture of the lost. For most people, the image they have of the Lord Jesus Christ is sweet little Jesus boy born in a manger. Or the image of the Lord Jesus is on a crucifix, dead, nailed to a cross. But the book of Revelation shows the shock of the lost to see the Lord Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. When it says in Revelation 6.15, Revelation 6.15, the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? You know, you think about this. They're asking for rocks and mountains to fall on height of, you know, right now, today, right now, we are living in the terror of what happened in Mexico City from the earthquake, and we're trembling at the thought of a survivor being buried alive under the fallen rubble of a building, lying there, trapped now. And we think that no one would ever want to be trapped like that and buried alive. And their only desire would be to be found. Well, there's going to be a, such a terror 
at seeing the power of the Lord Jesus, the cry of the lost would be, I'll take that. I'll take that position. Just bury me under the rocks because it's better to be buried alive under the rocks than to face the Lord Jesus in judgment. That's what's going on. And today there's, you know, today always there's, everybody thinks, you know, I've got one bullet saved. I've got one last bullet saved. What's it for? For me, the suicide option. The suicide option. You know, recently the state of California voted to, to suicide, assisted suicide. So, but in the judgment, there is no last bullet, as it says in Revelation 9-6. Revelation 9-6 says, and in those days shall men seek death. Uh, they want the last bullet and shall not find it and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. This is an absolute terror. And the more we as believers see this terror that's coming to the lost, the more we're going to give ourselves to doing all we can to save the lost from this terror. Many, many people today said, oh, the book of Revelation, stay away from that book. That's so scary, that book. It's so hard to understand. But the book of Revelation is full of terror, And that's why it's a book that's needed for today. Why? Because the book of Revelation is the most important book to fuel evangelism. Why? Because it describes the terror of the lost if they're not saved. And it's it's our knowledge of the terror of the lost that fuels our evangelism. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also manifest in your consciences. Now, I know a lot of people that when they think of evangelism, they think of sales, you know, like a used car salesman. They say, I'm not a salesman. That's my gift, thank God. Okay, but let's face it, evangelism is not the work of a UPS driver. You know, it's not just delivering the packages with a, with a, here's your package, my job is done, I deliver the package to you, so I'm gone. See, evangelism is not just giving out a track like an information, like a UPS driver. Evangelism is what 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, it calls the work of persuasion, it's persuasion. It's the work of persuasion. Sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's the work of persuasion. You know, it's easier to be a UPS driver and just deliver the message and then, than it is to be a salesman or a persuader. I mean, just picture the Lord Jesus giving a believer a whole load of packages of gospel message for the lost people. It's like the Lord loads up the truck and he sends the believers out with his gospel packages. Now, the worst thing that the believer can do is to get out of sight of the Lord, find a dumpster, and throw all the packages away and not deliver them. And that's the picture of a believer who, who doesn't seek the lost to be saved. And, and then there's a believer who acts just like the UPS driver and just says, well, you know, here it is, take it or leave it, my job's done. You know, but then there's the believer who not only delivers the gospel package, but then seeks for the, persuades the lost, open it, open it and receive it, be saved. That's why it's so important to meditate on the terror, the terror scenes in the book of Revelation, because of 2 Corinthians 5.11, 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, persuade men. Now, today is a day when the Lord Jesus is not wanting, not wanting to terrorize the lost, he wants to save the lost and protect them from the judgment. 
by coming to faith in the, in him to, to be saved from their sins. Now, Joseph, he has read the terror on their face, and he wants to comfort them so they will not be afraid. So he says to them in verse 4, Genesis 45, 4, verse 4, Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. See, he says in verse 4, Come near to me. Now, we can see the brothers in this point, when he's just said, I am Joseph, they're starting to inch their way away from him. They're saying, where's the direction of the door? I'm going to inch my way in that direction, you know? And But Joseph stops them, and he gives them an invitation, come near to me. He's telling his brothers that there can be no reconciliation without you coming close to me. you got to get close to me. And maybe the brothers would have said, you know, it's a little scary. Can we do it by remote control? You know, can we write you a letter <laughs> and, and in that way deal with all of our differences? And Joseph saying, no, 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 there's no remote control. There's no reconciliation until he, unless you come close to me. And that's the way it is with man. Man cannot make his peace with God from a distance. He's got to get close to God. Now, Joseph, he didn't say to his brothers, he didn't say to his brothers, now, you guys stand still as I come close to you. But no, he didn't say that. In verse 4, he says, come near to me. He knew his brothers, they had to make the first move to get closer to him. And that's the way it is with God. Man has to make the first move to get closer to God. As it says in James 4.8, James 4.8 says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. See, you draw nigh to God, then he'll draw nigh to you. And by the way, also cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. When Abraham wanted to plead with God to save Sodom from destruction. Abraham did one thing that's recorded in Genesis 18.23. In Genesis 18.23, it says, And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Man makes the first move to God, as God said in Zechariah 1.3. Zechariah 1.3, Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you. You know, the Lord Jesus did not say, now stand still as I come unto you, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. No. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Matthew eleven twenty eight, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Man, not God, makes the first move to get close to God and be saved. And then God turns to man, which is not as fatalism or Calvinism teaches that God makes the first move through election. That's false. And that's what we see in verse 4. Joseph inviting his brothers to make the first move when he says to them in verse 3, come near to me. Now then we see that Joseph added just a little special touch of tenderness in his invitation when he said to them, I pray you, I pray you. That was very tender of him. Well, next week, Lord willing, we'll see their response, which is that they came near. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being such a loving and tender God to invite us to come to you. And thank you, Lord, that as we turn to you, you turn to us. As we draw near to you, you draw near to us. Thank you, Lord, for these pictures that we see here in the life of Joseph and his brothers. In Jesus' name, amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. 
Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org, tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. Do you have fatigue or trouble getting out of bed or just getting through the day? Are you so tired you can't focus? Do you feel like your life is drained away? Do you have fibromyalgia headaches? I have good news for you. Our doctors at Scanabody's Imaging and Therapy can give you cellular ozone therapy. Why not get your energy back now by calling us at 1-888-529-9016 or visit us at treatmyfatigue.com. 